Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tortoise. Hello. And welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster. Together, Rachel and I try to make sense of what's going on by looking at the trends, how things have changed over time, and at some of the key numbers. This week, we are going to look at the King's Speech. King Charles gave his first ever state opening of Parliament, listing the bills, the laws that the government intends to try and pass in the next year. We're going to look at what it is, does it matter, how much has it changed, but we're also going to look at what it might mean for the Conservative Party. Can it change its fortunes, given that it remains a long way behind in the polls? And on that, we have a question from a listener, Gordon Shields, who wants to know, have younger voters been forgotten by the major Westminster parties. Has lower turnout, lack of PR, that's proportional representation, where the number of uh, politicians you get and from where is directly related to the number of votes cast, regardless of where in the country they're cast. Um, And a discourse more focused on the needs of an older generation weakened the voice and representation of younger UK citizens. John, I expect there's a very short answer to this and a longer answer, but why don't you give both? (laughs) Well, there's there's there's, there's a good question from Gordon. I mean, What is certainly true is that the age structure of our population has changed over time and that basically now only about 10% of people are aged between 18 and 24 and 23%, nearly a quarter, are aged 65 and over. And to that extent, and you look at uh, the pattern of public expenditure, that ageing population does mean we're spending a lot more on health and social care over time. And to that extent, you might want to feel the younger people are being left out. Um, That said, of course, what we should also remember is that it's probably not going to be wise for any future Labour government to forget younger people because uh, most younger people these days vote Labour. It's the biggest demographic divide in their politics. So maybe they're being forgotten a little bit at the moment, but that doesn't necessarily mean to say they're going to get forgotten in future. And I guess one of the things that we've talked about in previous episodes, John, is um, age and education are the big divides yeah. in a lot of our political issues. So there is a there's a genuine choice to be made often between what you do for older voters and younger voters because they care about different things and they believe fundamentally different things. So this does have implications for how much younger people feel that they are represented by the major parties and their choices. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, on all the evidence we've got is that younger people, and this has been true now for for a while, seem to be more likely to feel they are represented by the Labour Party than by the Conservatives. Um, maybe we should go back to King Charles. Yes, I suppose we should get back to the 74-year-old who opened his first parliament uh, this week. The King's speech is a 
slightly bizarre factor of our slightly bizarre constitution and system because, of course, we have a constitutional monarch who's the head of our state but who has no real power over what happens but reads out this speech about his government as though he has in any way been involved and there was a lot of speculation up to the speech about how King Charles, who's quite a well-known environmental campaigner, was going to feel about reading out uh, potential legislation to increase the number of oil uh, licences in the UK. But in order to make a bit of sense of the King's speech, uh, we should go to our first number, which is 105 to 56. So uh, John and I have been looking at the 1973 Queen's speech 50 years ago and what trends we can see about what's been happening in terms of legislation, the laws that are passed, and what is in those laws over the succeeding 50 years. John, do you want to explain what 105 to 56 is? Well, I think it's what we've picked out is the number of general acts of parliament that have got got passed in a year. So the session, uh, the year that's just gone, We've seen 56 acts pass, a number I think in somewhat also inflated by the fact that Parliament at the moment is having to legislate for Northern Ireland, Uh, whereas, you know, the 105 is the number of acts that were being passed way back in 1973, if I remember rightly. So we've had this uh, consistent trend over the last 50 years that the number of acts of Parliament, laws passed uh, by Parliament, has been on a steady decline. We pass fewer pieces of legislation. MPs are doing less work, aren't they, Rachel? Isn't this what this means? That is a a good question. They're not doing, they're not sitting for less time in their basic job, but they are passing few acts. That said, the actual number of pages that are being passed through a combination of these acts which get debated by MPs and lords and what is called um, statutory instruments, which right. are broadly... Hang on, hang on. you've lost... You've, oh, you've, it's it's you've, all so complicated, John. You've lost me, Rachel. <laughs> but let, let's go back to square one here. So an act. So an act is a piece of what we call primary legislation, which lays down a legal framework to say that... You know, the government should do this or if you somebody does this, they're going to be capable of being prosecuted or we're going to um, spend money on doing this. So it provides a broad legal framework for action. But very often and increasingly, this legislation doesn't necessarily give us all of the detail of what's required for this legislation to be implemented. And to do that, we have what's called statutory instruments which are much more detailed legislation which don't have anything like the degree of scrutiny in either the commons or the lords that uh, acts do i mean acts there that we have a first reading a second reading a committee stage a report stage a third reading goes through both houses of parliament some statutory instruments just get passed without anybody saying anything at all depending on, on the procedure So a lot of our legislation these days, a lot of the detail comes through these statutory instruments. So although it looks as though at first glance the Parliament's doing less, certainly there was a whole period from about 1992 through to certainly relatively recently when Parliament was relying very heavily on statutory instruments rather than necessarily acts of Parliament. So I guess that's one trend, which is we pass fewer pieces of legislation. We pass more volume of legislation, much of which gets less scrutiny than it did before. And and each of our individual acts themselves tends to be 
much longer because what we're doing is accumulating law upon law upon law upon law. And I think one of the things that is definitely true now is that most legislation is extremely hard for anyone to understand. Can you, can if you, you can read... You, can, can you explain this, Rachel? Right? Okay, as somebody who has kind of got in, got involved in the policy process... Why is it? I mean, let, let's just take it straightforward here. Why isn't it simply the case? We've got this Act of Parliament and it says government should do this or individuals should do this or the court should do this or this authority is going to be created and should do this. Why is it just say in fairly plain English what's, what's going to happen? I think it's a good question. And to be honest, I don't really know why it is that we have to have legislation that is quite so complex. But what we have decided to do often is amend previous pieces of legislation, ah. um, add on bits of legislation to the acts that government lays. That's one of the things that happens. Uh, MPs and opposition and lords add on bits of legislation. And the result is, if you if you happen to, and you can, you can look up any piece of legislation on the internet or go to the House of Commons and they'll give you a printed copy, is that this is entirely impenetrable to members of the public, but also to many of people who are working in politics and policy. Uh, hang on, are you, are you telling us the politicians don't know what they're doing, Rachel? No, I don't think politicians do know what they're doing often with the scrutiny of legislation. I think that is one of the really big challenges. You get into Parliament, you're faced with incredibly complex pieces of legislation, mm -hmm. uh, which often the advisors themselves who've been helping to put these ideas together don't fully understand. You're expected to scrutinise it, often on subjects you know relatively little about. The legislation becomes more complicated with each succeeding year. And if you consider that the core purpose of the House of Commons and the House of Lords is to scrutinise the laws that we pass, that is what it is for and to yeah. pass it, I actually think it's an immensely difficult job. And to the point you were making earlier, John, the other thing that's happened is that people avoid passing legislation or at least primary legislation, the thing that gets formally debated, as much as they possibly can. So when I was in government, generally the attitude was if you can figure out a way to do something without having to make it primary legislation, that's a good outcome because it will happen faster you're much more in control of it because there won't be lots of annoying MPs and lords adding stuff to it, using it as a political dividing line, making mm -hmm. it more complicated. Mm -hmm. um, and you yourself will understand it better. And in an environment where you either don't have a big majority or, as the case now, government might have a very big majority on paper but finds it quite hard to get the things they want through their own backbenchers, planning reforms, say, yep. then the more you can do, the more you can do to avoid legislation, the better. That said, despite all that, one of the reasons that it's been 18 months since our last Queen's speech is because we couldn't fit the legislation we had and the amount of debating time we had into a year. Yeah, actually, this, this is a, another point that we do need to explain. And again, something that's started to change over time. So you might say to yourself, well, hang on, we, we've not had an election. Why are we now having a King's speech? So historically, we've had this, what some people regard as a rather peculiar structure, whereby Parliament gets divided into yearly sessions. And historically, those sessions were nearly always about a year long. But also, crucially, any piece of legislation 
had to be passed within the yearly frame. And that therefore meant that when we got typically to the autumn, when we we're going to get the next King's speech, there was a big rush to try and get the last bits of legislation through because if they didn't get through, they fell and you had to start again, all right? Um, and that, in fact, gave sometimes the Commons or, and or the Lords a certain amount of um, pressure against the government because they could say to the government, we're not going to pass this legislation unless you accept these few amendments. One of the things that happened in the era of New Labour was to say, hang on, this doesn't really strike us as terribly sensible. And so what we now get is this situation whereby the government can pass, can put forward a motion to say, well, I know we haven't got this bill through, but we'll now carry it forward to the next session. So there were 21 bills mentioned or at least referred to in the King's speech this week. But actually, six of them are bills that have already been going through the previous session. Right. So that's point that, that's point one. We've we are now the session no longer means means as much as it once did. The second thing to realise, however, is that we've now begun to move, particularly since 2010, to not necessarily having yearly sessions. So after the 2010 election, we actually had a session that lasted for two years. And you're right, the session that's finally now being concluded started in the spring of last year. And so, so it's also been um, uh, 18 months long. So we've now, the sessions no longer mean quite what they did. And two, now they're beginning increasingly to be of variable length, which in fact is now beginning to make some people, you know, those who kind of worry about the detail department saying, well, hang on, why do we bother with this at all? What is the point of the King's speech, of parliamentary sessions, etc., etc.? And, you know, certainly, for example, in the devolved institutions, although there is an annual statement about what the government is proposing to do, though it doesn't come from the Crown, it comes from the government minister, there is no such thing as, you know, sessions that divide the regime up. So I think you know, there is an interesting question here is, will we discover that perhaps Prince William, when he becomes king, doesn't have as many king speeches to give as we have as, as we have at the moment. But anyway, we will see. That is one for the future. I suppose the other thing that is worth flagging as a trend over the last fifty years, if we think about the nineteen seventy three Queen's speech, mm -hmm. is that King Charles and Queen Elizabeth, when she was alive, give this speech to the House of Lords, to the peers, even though it is, of course, the House of Commons and the government that commands a majority well, the, 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 that the, is defining the, it. The MPs stand at the back. They're kind of allowed in. They're in, sort in, of vaguely yeah, allowed in. In the servants' it, entrance, yeah. yeah with the crown and the jewels and the ermine, this is very much uh, bringing up the kind of pomp and circumstance of the past. And presumably, you know, interesting, how, how, how unfamiliar would it look to the person who was um, opening Parliament when Guy Fawkes was trying to blow it up on the 5th of November all those all those centuries ago. And if you look at 1973, uh, the people that Queen Elizabeth was delivering her speech to looked very, very different uh, to now. So it was to the House of Lords in which almost everybody, over 400 of the 500 or so peers, was hereditary. Mm -hmm. Only 16 of them were women. We'd only very recently, about uh, 15 years earlier, allowed life peers, which are now the vast majority of people who make up the House of Lords. And it was still the case, therefore, that the House of Lords represented 
a sort of landed and historical aristocracy of which the monarch was the head. Whereas now, while King Charles is, is giving his speech to the peers, a huge proportion of these people were maybe doctors who became crossbench peers or even more likely people who'd worked for the Labour Party or the Conservative Party yeah, or the Liberal Democrats it's, 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 and then being appointed. Isn't the House of Lords perhaps in some ways now a retirement home for former MPs? I think increasingly former MPs and former advisors. And it's also much bigger. So we now have over 800 yeah. peers, um, almost all of whom were appointed. This is one of the things that um, New Labour changed in 97. Yeah. And so you have people who have this title who are not elected, who can scrutinise legislation, although they don't have the final say on it, but are not fundamentally different in background to most people in the the House of Commons. Sure. Though, of course, one of the things that that is true is that because the House of Lords is now um, predominantly life peers and not the hereditary chamber, it it has meant that... uh, uh, the consequence of that is the Lords has become somewhat more influential because it's now rather more difficult for governments to, to denigrate it as saying you're know, being completely out of touch, etc., etc. In a moment, we'll discuss the substance of the King's speech. How much does it matter? We'll be back in a minute. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Maybe we should move on to looking at the substance of the King's speech that uh, King Charles put forward, because um, in advance, at least, it was billed as a speech in which it would put up a number of so-called dividing lines between the government and the opposition. And what was meant by this, I think, were things where the government would take one position, the opposition would take another, not uncommon in the House of Commons, but would be, be, be being made to do so on issues where the government's position was popular, at least certainly popular with people who voted Conservative in 2019, um, and that therefore this might be a way of trying to help them to entice back into the Conservative fold uh, people who voted for the party in 2019 but have since fallen out of love with them. And the one issue that I at least can spot where perhaps will come more broadly to the moment. So well, certainly one example where this seems to be the case, and this is the legislation to uh, say that the authority that's responsible for licensing oil and gas exploration in the North Sea 
should have to do uh, have a give out a round of licenses once every year. Hasn't done so historically, although there's nothing to stop it from doing so. Um, if we take a um, survey done by YouGov of the University of Bristol back in July, um, asking whether or not we they people supported or opposed a ban on um, licenses for exploring Britain's North Sea oil and gas. 31% um, supported the ban, 42% were opposed. So certainly an issue on which we were divided. But crucially, 63% of 2019 Conservative voters were opposed to the ban, whereas 49% of Labour supporters were in favour. So, Rachel, is this, is this the measure in the bill that is designed to try and create a bit of a wedge between the two parties? So I think, yes, and, and it's actually probably important to say that the King's speech, the moment in which you say what legislation you're going to pass, is usually part of a small number of moments that a government uses every year to try and define their agenda and their narrative. And one of those is party conference, both the leader of the party and the leader of the opposition, as leader of the government and leader of the opposition, set out their stool and make policy pronouncements. One is the King's Speech, mm -hmm. which is what we had this week. And the third is the budget or the autumn statement, which we're going to be getting in a few weeks where the Chancellor stands up but tends to offer things on tax or spending. So, so normally the these are a package and you're limited by what you can say in each of those packages. Obviously, the King's speech has to be legislation and lots of things you want to do. Well, not, 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 not I mean, not, not entirely. A... I mean, again, one of the intriguing things going back to the 1973 King's speech, what you discovered there is uh, the first half of it was not about legislation at all. It was about That's the true. government's broad That's direction and in particular a lot about foreign affairs and about threats to the UK. Not least, of course, because we just another Middle East war had just uh, uh, broken out, and indeed, you know, one of the interesting things I think about the king's the king's speech as a text was how little framing there actually was in it this time, and to that extent, at least, as it were, the substance or at least the presentation of the speech was rather odds with some of the previous billing. It was very much about legislation, and, and there wasn't very much in terms of. What's the government's broad narrative? Not least, perhaps, because, of course, virtually everything in this King's speech had already been announced, including not least at the Tory party conference a few weeks ago. Well, I think there are... So I think that is true. And, and I'd love to come back to 1973 in a minute because I think the historical parallels are very interesting as we look forward. But the sort of things that you would not tend to get in a King's speech is a promise of a Indeed. tax cut or a promise of 30 hours childcare. So 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 the 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 I suppose the point I was trying to make is is you know you have to look at these if you're trying to divine a government strategy, and it's not terribly obvious to me that there is a clear government strategy, you have to look at these together. But what, but so the oil and gas licences yeah. is a follow-on to the speech that the Prime Minister gave uh, before party conference this year, in which he said he was going to extend some of his, uh, change some of his net zero measurements. What was said at party conference, and then there's all of which are designed to create a dividing line with Labour on ex a expenditure, but also how much individuals are expected to pay to uh, in in the desire to hit net zero, and also, I mean, the the other thing that you know anyone who's been in government will know, and it's true of things like the King's Speech, it's true of things like conference, it's true of things like budget. Is often these are last minute scrambles 
and debates which get decided at the 11th hour. Suddenly you look at the King's speech and you're like, oh my God, we haven't said anything about X. Let's come up with some legislation or something yeah. to say. That They're less sort of consistently planned, even when a government does have a clear strategy. Now, of course, as you referred to, we are at the end of a parliament after a very substantial number of Conservative administrations, most of which have not lasted a full parliamentary term. And we are weighted down by the past of what those different Conservative administrations have done. And it's virtually impossible now to set a new narrative, let alone a new narrative which requires legislation, which itself requires a year to pass before anything happens. So it's not surprising that it's slightly random. I suppose the one thing of substance... Or maybe two things of substance that are that are vaguely interesting in the King's speech is there were a lot of bills on crime. And one of the things that the government obviously has decided it wants to talk about a lot is getting tougher on crime. Although, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, that does require them to have yeah. more prison places uh, for all the people they're going to be tough on. The second is that there is always some bills that are, as you said, a response to the situation that has emerged. So there was a, a a bill introduced which is going to stop people boycotting Israeli products. That is a um, yeah. reaction to an emerging yeah. situation. And, and you're always going to get some of those as well. And you then have a lot of horse trading about making enough time in Parliament yeah. to debate those and pass them because you have to have more you want to do than you have um, to pass. But I think generally, John, you and I are agreed that there wasn't very much of huge substance that is likely to cut through two voters in the King's speech or create a dividing line. I mean, to be honest, the thing that struck me about this speech, finding the wedge, i.e. identifying the issues about which the public frankly know anything at all. A lot of the legislation is technical um, uh, or it's not going to, you know, driverless cars, you know, we'll have a debate about how quickly you're willing to adapt to them and what safety concerns are required. But this is not a partisan issue. Much of the digital economy doesn't. Actually, beyond that, finding issues where A, the public are divided and B, where the government and the opposition are likely to take a different position, that is actually hard. rather hard. I mean, I've been, I, I, you know, I, I yeah. went through quite a few of them. So even if we come, for example, to prison sentences, where we might think, oh, the government's going to introduce more whole life, more whole life sentences, etc., etc. Well, A, it's not clear the Labour Party are going to oppose this. Oh, but by the way, also in this bill, which is something you and I also spoke about a couple of weeks ago, is that basically we are going to end custodial sentences of less than 12 months. Oddly, that particular... Which is going to not be very popular. Uh, Well, but even that's not clear because actually if you go back to research that was done for the Justice Committee by Savanta not so long ago, A, yes, that research indicated that for really serious crimes like you know, the murder of a child or whatever. Life should mean life in people's views, a whole life sentence. But equally, it found that, um, you know, over a half of people felt that we, that non-costernial sentences for crimes that don't involve violence are acceptable. So actually, it's not even clear that this might actually be more popular than perhaps the government realises. But otherwise... Uh, ending so-called no-fault eviction. So at the moment, uh, if a landlord simply wants to get their property back, they can say to their tenant, I'm terribly sorry, I need you to leave within three months or whatever, I want my property back. Again, new gov, 65% of people support this. Conservative voters um, 
and uh, Labour voters. Um, the one piece of legislation that is probably going to be remembered in the long term from this King's speech is, of course, the proposal to gradually increase the age at which you can no longer buy cigarettes with a view to eventually phasing out cigarettes. Um, that is something which, according to the polling evidence, around 70% of people think is a good idea. Conservative voters and Labour voters, more at one. We're finally going to make permanent what is already in place, a ban on the live exports of animals. That is also uh, broadly popular. And I think this is, a uh, you know, two important points from this. The first is, it's always the incentive for pollsters and political people to focus on where the public is divided. But there are actually lots of things Absolutely. where the public aren't that divided at all. It's not that hard to find things that lots and lots of people agree on. The second, of course, is that it's very easy to say, well, the government has no strategy, it's useless, it has no narrative, and I'm guilty of this. But it's not easy right now. The things that the public care about deeply, which we've talked about a lot, are the economy and cost of living Absolutely. and the health service. It is not obvious to anybody what levers you pull with, with without huge trade-offs or costs or uncertainty about whether it's going to work. They're going to make a dent in those. We have a prime minister who came in very late into the parliament, which was already, as we discussed, 13 years into a conservative government. He had very little time to change things. And so he's you know, the, the government is sort of slightly trapped by circumstance in the real world and the stage in the political cycle it's in. And and going back to 1973, because I think the parallels are so interesting. It's been 50 years. You know, the, the Queen's speech then was just after the end of the Yom Kippur War, where the Arab states um, invaded Israel. Israel uh, successfully defeated them. Uh, there was an oil embargo, which created an oil shock. There was lots of inflation as a result. And quite soon after the Queen's speech, which was uh, during the period when Edward Heath, the Conservative Prime Minister, was Prime Minister, there was a huge wave of strike votes. There was a snap election in, in February, February yes. it was, 1974. Well, you I, remember I, I, this, John, I, I, you were around. I, I, so absolutely, you're going to I remember. So, so the coal miners went on strike. And so uh, in those days, uh, a lot of our electricity was being generated by coal. And I can well remember having to do my homework by candlelight, Rachel. Yes, absolutely. And this was the three-day week three day period, week. right? It was yeah, just yeah, before the three-day so, week. And, and, and Edward Heath went to the country on the basis of who governs, to which the answer was, Mr. Heath, it ain't you, because Howard Wilson then became prime minister <laughs> once again. Um, yeah, I mean, which, of course, then it's a, it's a very, very strong reminder to us. So there was a Queen's speech. And then a few months, almost actually a little more than a few weeks later, all completely overtaken by um, developments uh, in, the, in, in the labour market and in the broader economy. And some of the legislation she announced did actually make it in. The, the, the original kind of health and safety legislation for the workplace was announced in that Queen's speech. And it did pass because, to your point, some of these things tend to have quite broad cross-party consensus. But much of what the narrative that Edward Heath would have hoped would have kind of carried him through became irrelevant. Indeed. Indeed. Politicians can't necessarily always shape the events in which they're interested. Well, I guess that takes us to our final numbers, which we've been kind of, we've, we've, we've been skirting around. Uh, where are our politics now so far as the public are concerned? Well, if we take the average of the opinion polls, I've just taken about there's about 10 polls that have been conducted we get so many polls these days about 10 of them conducted since about the third week of October. 
October. Conservative, 26. Labour, 45. Liberal Democrat, 10. Greens, 6. Reform, 8. Now, if we go back to this time a year ago, i.e. just after Mr Sunak became Prime Minister, we were looking at Conservative 27, Labour 47. In other words, the gap between the two main parties is almost exactly the same now as it was 12 months ago. And of course, the whole point in some senses of the Conservative Party ditching Liz Truss and replacing her with Mr Sunak was that Mr Sunak, as the rather more popular politician, was, they hoped, going to turn the Conservatives' fortunes around. So the fundamental problem the Conservatives face is what, if anything, can we do to turn things around, having been basically unable to do so in the last 12 months. And I think you're right. The King's speech probably isn't where this is going to be the case. Though what I thought was interesting, Rachel, and I don't think this got picked up very widely. The first thing that uh, uh, King Charles said after the um, uh, reminding us of his mother and the 70 years of her service, etc., etc., was actually an acknowledgement that the two big challenges facing the government were one, the economy, and two, the health service. There was a very interesting acknowledgement there. And also going on to say, and I'm not, well, maybe I was reading too much into it, going on to say, you know, getting down inflation is a top priority. And as a result, we've got to make careful decisions about spending and about finances, which I thought was code for don't necessarily expect tax cuts any anytime too soon. But anyway, much as you know, Conservative MPs are becoming increasingly uh, concerned about that. So I think in truth, we might have got sotto voce, an acknowledgement by this government that in the end, probably turning these numbers around do depend on the economy, do depend on the health service, probably don't depend on much of what was in this King's speech earlier this week. And my interpretation is that they knew that earlier this year, that was the drive of the five pledges that Rishi sure. Sunak came up with on the economy and health. Um none of which are really soluble through legislation. You couldn't put it in the King's speech. They then had a brief period when it looked like they weren't making any progress on those, where they hoped that through a succession of announcements at conference on HS2 and smoking and maths to a, uh, education changing to 18, that this might somehow divert people from those core issues of the economy and health and convince people this was a change candidate. Um and actually it can't, and it doesn't, uh, that still doesn't solve their basic problem, which is you. there are very few levers that the government has that are going to make a dent in health services and basic economic indicators over the next year. Um, they are, you know, I get asked quite often, like, what would you do? And I don't know. I kind of think they're stuck. Well, on that uplifting note for the government, that's it from Trendy for this week. Next week, in the wake of Remembrance Day, we're going to look at attitudes towards war, the armed forces, defence spending, etc. I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. New episodes are published every Thursday. Please do rate and review us. It really helps people find us. And follow the feed so you don't miss an episode.
tortoise. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.